I'm Jennifer Palmer, I'm the host of Online for Authors. Welcome to the Online for Authors podcast. Online for Authors has come under the management of Visibility Pod. Visibility Pod manages the podcast as well as all of the guest and host booking and communication to get the episodes scheduled, up and running, and posted on to various platforms as well as creating all of our wonderful content. I'm currently a visibility strategist with Visibility Pod and offer coaching. Some coaching is offered via live visibility strategy sessions. Take those in and see if working with Visibility Pod, me as a strategist, is a fit for you. Email visibilitypodcasts at gmail.com. This is the Online for Authors podcast. Thanks for being here. Welcome to episode 14, Committed with Nathaniel A. Turner. Author and TEDx speaker, Nathaniel is a self-described humanity propulsion engineer committed to living with joy on purpose and helping, serving, and making sure everyone knows their life matters. Nate is the author of several books. He was born in Gary, Indiana and lives in Indianapolis, Indiana. He has a diverse education, including a Bachelor of Accounting, Masters of History and Theology, a Doctor of Jurisprudence, combined with a wide range of personal experiences and professions. Nate regularly shares through books, courses, workshops, and conferences a backward design life process initially created to help his unborn child become a great global citizen and meet the rigorous educational requirements of the top colleges and universities without means of wealth, privilege, legacy, status, fraud, bribery, cheating, or Adobe Photoshop. Turner's son not only met the Harvard admission benchmarks, test scores in the top 1%, 33 college credits by his junior year, proficiency in four languages, left home after his junior year to play soccer in Brazil, and started a foundation to address teen homelessness. At present, Turner's son is a third-year electrical and computer engineer, PhD candidate, at one of the world's premier graduate engineering schools. Today, these tools, techniques, and strategies initially created to help his Gen Zer thrive in the fourth industrial revolution are educational and life development staples for students and parents of all ages and organizations worldwide. Welcome to the Online for Authors podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I received a box of books last week. And I want to thank you so much. Wow. Is it everything you've ever written? Everything has been published. I did read It's a Jungle Out There, inspired by The Lion King, powerful parenting lessons for this interview. I am going to actually recommend this book to at least one expected mother, expecting mother. And, and I thought about actually referring it to her before I was even done. I got partway through. And and there will be a book review as well that I put on Goodreads because I noticed that you're on Goodreads, which is fabulous. The lessons are amazing. I I do understand that a lot of the statistical information that you've cited here is a little older. I think it ranges in dates from, what is it, 2005 all the way to 2019. There is a bulk of it there that is, is cited from 2012 and mostly U.S., I can see how a greater population could have more struggles with the different dynamics of parenting. I wish I'd read it before I was a parent, you know, so we hadn't published it yet. So that wasn't even a possibility. (laughs) No, I hadn't published it. It is the movie that made me want to be a father. 
up until I saw The Lion King, I did not want to be a parent. And now let's talk about that because... uh, Sure. Why would you not want to be a parent? I had a terrible relationship with my father. My grandmother would say, the trees shall be known by the fruit that it bears. One of the things I was concerned about was how do I become something other than the thing from which I grew from? I just assumed that I would mess it up. My wife also had a very challenging childhood, and we both thought, you know, it's going to be really tough for us, given our childhoods, to not do the same thing. But she was convinced she wanted to be a parent and give it a try anyway. I was less convinced. And we sat in a theater and watched The Lion King, and everyone left the theater but she and I. And I sat in the theater and probably cried for about 30 minutes because I'd finally seen a relationship between a son and a father, like with two animated characters that gave me hope that maybe one day I could have the same thing with a child. What you got out of this movie is profound. There's so much in this book and so much relatable. I don't even think the the writers or the creators of the movie had any <laughs> any inkling, you know, that someone like yourself might actually get anything like this out of the movie. That's just 10 of the lessons. I think I had about a total of 40 of them. I, I sat and watched it a number of times. Each time I would watch it, like, oh, okay, there's that. I didn't see that before. It just it, it's been profound in my life. From the process that my wife and I used to name our child to introducing our child to the world, we followed some of the things from the Lion King to a T. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of parents raise their children alone, single moms. Uh, they're single dads, too. It's very isolating. You talk about this in your book. Uh, you also talk about the proverb, uh, it takes a village. Did you have that growing up? Did you have a village around you at all? I grew up in a small town outside of Chicago called Gary, Indiana. Gary, Indiana, today, I don't know if it's still the case, but was, when I was a child, the most segregated city in America. It was 97% African-American, 2% Hispanic Latino, and 1% white. You would have been a minority. But Gary wasn't always like that. It was a steel town. So it was very much initially like any steel town or Pittsburgh. So there was a majority white population. And then folks migrated, black folks migrated from the South, moved to places like Gary. The first black mayor in, in, in the United States was Richard G. Hatcher from Gary, Indiana. I was born in 65. But there was a lot more community given people were leaving the South on the back, backdrop of the civil rights movement. And so folks who looked like me, were very protective about that next generation. I did have a village. There was a, a judge who became an inspiration for me to become a lawyer. There were several teachers who embraced me and be, made me part of their family. There was a business owner and a police officer who embraced me and made me part of his family. So most of the people that I knew growing up were extended mothers and fathers and uncles and aunts for me. So I did have a village. Yeah. So in the absence of, like, say, the father you would have liked to have had and the father you'd like to be, that mm-hmm. did exist. So you do have the modeling and the experience of it to be able to pass along. I did get an opportunity to spend time with some other people's fathers who, yeah, embraced me in ways that my father didn't. Now, in retrospect, I got a lot of great lessons from my father. They were sometimes painful. <laughs> they they sometimes don't manifest themselves until now. 
But I did get some valuable things from I did have a father at home. So I wasn't one of the kids that says my father wasn't ever around. No, my father was around and he was around the entirety of my childhood. It just that it wasn't always good for us to be in the same place. There's a big difference too about being in the same space and being emotionally and intellectually and spiritually available. Yes. Yes. And my father wasn't always those things. He was around mostly, but he wasn't always available. This part of your book, I'm going to read it because uh, sure. this is something I've tagged. I got tags. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it says, why are we using euphemisms when there is nothing harsh and blunt or offensive present? How do these fantastic stories serve us, our children, our greater society? Our pretend stories about the origin, the cessation of life, the best way to teach children. Do we really want our children growing up thinking of life as something to be taken seriously only when we cross over, get to the other side, or get called to higher service? Is our intention to leave our children void of the skills necessary to handle the one thing we are unequivocally sure? that we will witness, experience, and endure? Do we parents even recognize how disingenuous and detrimental this behavior is for our children? Now, I found this so (laughs) conversation-worthy that I marked it. And it was the first part of the book that I marked. Not that it was the, any part of the book was any bad, but this one hit me. And I say that because I've lost my father. I lost my father in my 20s. And my daughter lost her grandfather a few years ago. So there, there is this. It, it definitely, definitely is going to happen. We all have a view of life and death. We all cope with how we want to communicate that on one level or another. Now, this I found extremely refreshing that you brought up the need to change this conversation, to to get really real and raw about the reality of this. Yeah, it, again, it, it's been a while since I've even looked at that. I guess I should have grabbed the book myself. My point, I'd rather deal with reality than to deal with fiction. And I think we do children a disservice because at some point in time, children have to do a reality. All we've ever done is feed them fiction. I'm not sure that, th- that the transition from fiction to reality is easy as it could be if we just dealt in reality from the start. Yeah. So have, having the book here, this is rule number six, tell your children the truth about important things like life and death. The other point that you make is that if it's so easy to skirt over important issues like this, I mean, life and death, thats we all are, we got, that's how we got here. That's how we're leaving. <laughs> you know, how, how are they going to come to us with important questions and expect the truth? So I, I love this, but like, the reality of experiences that we are definitely without a doubt going to have that we have such a problem talking about as a community as a whole. 
like you're changing the conversation here. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like it's important when I look back in my own life, there are a number of things that I found myself struggling and, and being challenged with that I know originate with people not being honest with me about that aspect to begin with. So for example, intimacy. Right. I grew up in a Christian household. Now you grew up in a Christian household, you're told that sex is bad. Right. Then one day they tell you, you get married and then suddenly now that I'm married, sex is good. But for my whole life, you've told me that this was a bad thing for me to do. And now my wife and I are both looking at each other. And now it's that time. How do you transition 18, 20, 21, 25, however many years it is before you decide to do it? How do you transition from thinking something is all bad to suddenly thinking that this is an okay thing to do? And I think it, just, it, it has a disturbing effect that lasts much longer than anyone is honest about. There are moments that I still struggle and say, is this appropriate behavior or not? Because my upbringing was such was so strict that there were some things like that that were always off limits. I just felt like what I wanted to do with my son is just be honest from the beginning and not give him the same life hangups that I have. Or when someone dies or that you are living each day as if there's some fantasy about death. And then when death happens, death is hard. Maybe if I was more prepared, I would even treat people differently on a day-to-day basis because I wouldn't take life so so for granted because I fictionalized it in such a way. I've had a conversation in the past where I've said flat out, we don't celebrate death enough. It is sad. We're going to lose somebody. But you know what? Birth is celebrated. Where were we before we got here? Where are we going? The celebration has to happen on both ends of this humanity. And I think it needs to happen more often. Definitely. I understand where you're going with the needing if, to tell the if, truth about con- and have valid conversations that are important conversations that are real. <laughs> yeah, especially if that place on the other side, as my grandmother would tell me, was so much better. Why are we crying? If someone is going on a vacation and they're going someplace better than when they currently live, which one of us cries that they're leaving? You might cry, you're going to miss them, but you're not doing all of the, some of the stuff that I've seen <laughs> happen because someone is, is, is going on to another world. If it's a better world, to your point, we should be celebrating that and doing so with great joy. And that's not really what we do. Yeah, our beliefs are a little messed up, aren't they? Yeah, right, yeah. 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 yeah, speaking of beliefs, the, the conversations that a lot of parents are having create limiting beliefs for children. Like you said, you've had some challenges with the experiences, not just conversations, but the experiences that you've had, parent-child relationship. We, as children, develop limiting beliefs easier because there's someone acting or saying something that we buy into. We buy it. We believe it because they're in a position of authority. We don't know. (laughs) Right. You're right. You're right. We're counting on them to, to guide us correctly. As a child, we're just like a open teapot. Whatever you put inside the teapot is what will end up on the stove boiling. If it's water or if it's oil, whatever someone pours in it, that's what we're going to warm up to. Hopefully we give kids stuff that's authentic that helps them in the long term. I I agree. And I think that, you know, it's important to acknowledge that we've all been given, well, most of us, 
Good. I've been given the abilities, you know, no manual to guide us. There are lots of parenting books out there. I've not seen any that uses a movie analogy <laughs> to the degree that, and especially a children's, an animated children's movie as an analogy. It's wonderful. There's some other stuff that I wanted to talk about in your book. And I think the, you're building a whole new community around parenting and a way of going about parenting. I hope you have a group, support group for parents, because, you know, those who read your book, we may have to come together and, and uh, go, okay, what was rule number eight again? <laughs> Speaking of rule number eight, <laughs> it's All right. your, All right. your child is a narcissist. I mm. love this. I love this. So we come into this world allowed to be a narcissist. And then at a certain age, <laughs> we're not allowed to be anymore. <laughs> no, grow up. This is a cake. Why are they changing the rules so early? <laughs> and some of us just never, they, we just never accept that this rule needs to change and we continue to be a narcissist. You say, as a lay person, a narcissist. <laughs> I love how you put this. I love how you put this. I'm not a doctor or psychologist. So when I use the word narcissist, I do so as a lay person. Now that the lawyers and mental health authorities, or as I prefer to reference them, the adult professional narcissists have been satisfied, <laughs> I want you to know that your little bundle of joy is on their way, if they haven't already arrived, at the unavoidable destination to become a full-fledged narcissist. <laughs> I love that now that the adult professional narcissists are satisfied. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> I just, I did. I, I, I laughed so hard. I'm laughing too. I forgot that I wrote those words, but yes, but But I love it because there's a sense of humor here too about it all. For heaven's sakes, it's a very serious subject. I love it. I love it. So you continue to write and you continue to write wonderful books. They're wonderful, powerful messages. This is one of the great things I love about interviewing authors because I get to read some stuff that I would absolutely never come across on my own. And the experience that I get to come away with, the people that I get to meet, I, I, there's no replacing it. I could not have this any other way. And it adds so much value to my life and to the life of others. There's no way this book is going to only impact me. Because I've experienced it, it impacts everything I do. There's definitely insights in there that it's absorbed. It's been absorbed. There's, there's no way it couldn't be. Appreciate it. I appreciate it. Like I said, there were 40 things that we, that, I've, that I found in there. And my son, he said, you do know nobody is going to read 40 things. Just do 10. See if anybody cares. Then you can share the rest of them. And maybe one day we'll get around to sharing 11 through 40. There were 40 lessons. Well, there could be volume one through four, you know. If the world were perfect, the, the thing I would most enjoy doing was maybe having a camp for parents. At Disney, around the Lion King. Wow, I think you should pitch that to Disney. Yeah, I'm, I'm like that would be ultimately because to your point, there is no quote unquote guidebook, but maybe the movie can serve in some ways as that kind of guy. I saw in the movies, you know, a, a young man who had a village, and he had a village such that when he lost his way. The villager, one of the villagers went out and found him and brought him back home. I saw a young man who understood his purpose was 
far bigger than Hakuta Matata every day. Yeah. And sometimes even your best of friends like Timon and Puma can be great friends, but they can lead you astray from what it is that you're supposed to do. There were so many wonderful messages and I thought if I could ever one day get Disney to, to hear it, maybe I could pitch it to them. We could do a, an adult camp. Well, you could put a whole nother spin on it from what you just mentioned there. This one is definitely geared for parents. There could be one geared for teens. I uh, love that idea. The journey of being an author, you've been writing for a very long time. When did you start writing? Do you remember? As a child, I was told I was no good at it. Glad you didn't I listen. Didn't. I did listen for a long time. I listened for a long time. And it took a child to tell me that it was okay for me to write. The interesting thing of it is, as a 16-year-old in high school, my guidance counselor told me the best I could hope to do was join the military. Then a 16-year-old told me to take the letters that I had written to him over his lifespan and publish them. It's kind of a full circle, and I didn't think about it till that way until you, to just now with you. It wasn't until 2012 that I ever considered myself a writer. But I just written my son letters to confess to him how much I loved him and that I hope and pray not to mess it up and give him some direction that if I died, that he would have some lessons that he could use to carry him on through the duration of his life. But it was him who said, you should publish these and share them with other families. So, Unconditional love is an absolutely amazing gift. Yeah, no, yeah. that was the genesis of it. Like, okay, then because I wrote these letters to my son and, and I had an opportunity to talk to people and it asked, well, why did you write your son letters and you explain it? Then I found myself feeling the need to tell parents some other things that I had thought about, like why the Lion King meant so much to me or why I was concerned about the direction we were going with education or how I taught my son to affirm his life through journaling and vision boards, but I had been a hypocrite and not have done any of it myself. So I decided to start <laughs> share how I was doing that. Or he wrote a book and why we wanted him to write a book and how that one little book changed the course of his life. Yeah, I don't know if I'm sharing this with you. His book, what are we going to do today? He didn't want to write. So he says, I'm not writing a book. And I said, Nain, you should write a book. You should definitely write a book. So he said, okay, well, here's what I care. I care about childhood literacy. And I'd really like other parents to spend as much time helping their children as you all have helped me. Yeah. So that's what he wrote. That one book got in the hands of a dean of a school of engineering who then connected him with one of the largest fellowships in the country. And that fellowship allowed him to then pad his resume. And he ended up getting seven PhD offers. <laughs> and now he's in his fourth year of his, of his PhD. And I tell people sometimes, you know, it's the little things of these little small details like just showing people that you care about something greater than yourself that allow you to do something bigger than you ever thought was possible. We think that book has some part of that. Depending on what your spiritual beliefs are, it could be universal guidance or divine intervention. But, you know, this, these catalysts and these life right. experiences, they're here for a reason. Yeah, well, the, the gentleman sat in a room with him. It was interesting. He was being interviewed to be dean of his, the schools of engineering, and no other student showed up. So while this gentleman is there, he says, hey, I read your book. By the way, if I had known it was just going to be you and I, I would have brought it so you could autograph it. Ah. Right? And then he said, what can I do to help you? What do you want to do with your life? It was just the two of them. He had already 
made a decision about the kind of human being he thought my son was from having his book. And so the, this discussion was no longer about what kind of person you were. The discussion was about how do I help you, young man, fulfill your journey? And that just came from a book. So I, I tell parents all the time, hey, hey, have your children do something to leave their, their mark on the planet and let them do it. Let them do it now. Yeah, absolutely. I interviewed a gentleman who it was a Grammy-nominated producer who became an author. And on his website, he has a list of independent bookstores that if you don't have that, I think it would be great that if these books aren't already there, it would be great if they were, especially in libraries everywhere, every library everywhere. Now that you've said that about his, his your son's book, I have to detour away from Journey Forward for a little bit and get and I'm, I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> sorry. It's all good. It's good. Yeah. So what else can you tell me about the journey of an author? Like, did you have a lot of support in your writing endeavors? Did you have help with getting it published? My son helped me publish it. The notice will sound a little bit like a tribute to him, but in many ways, my life is a tribute to him. It's a funny thing. I've said a lot lot of stuff that I believe in to him that was of value to him. And then he puts it back to me and like, oh. Okay, where have I heard that before? So when he was, I think, 12, he wanted an iPhone. And one of the things I said to him is, I, I don't want the phone, you do. So write me a business proposal for why I should give you this iPhone. And he said, well, Dad, why am I doing that? You're the lawyer. I'm not the lawyer. I said, I don't know the iPhone, you do. And so he sends me a business proposal. And I'm sitting with some clients and we're having lunch. The, the old days on the flip phone and I get this notification. I started laughing and they asked me what, and I tell them, that my son is reading me this business proposal for an iPhone. And they said, well, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to deny it. I'm going to stamp it and that denied and that I would like to counteroffer. And so we went through this, <laughs> this, right, this offer, counteroffer. And finally, we finally come to an agreement. We get the iPhone. What he learned and that what I was hoping to teach him was to be able to start to look at legalese to look at contracts and those kind of things as early as 11 or 12 and not wait for someone else. So now, seven years later, when he decides that we should publish these letters, he does all the work. He finds the editor and knows how to look at the, the contract. He finds the artist to do the book cover and knows how to look at the contract. He gives it to me to review it to make sure that what he believes he's seeing is accurate, but he knows how to do all that. And it's because those kind of lessons were lessons that we pre- prescribed to him throughout throughout his childhood. So, as I said, it, none of it would have existed but for him. He found a publicist for us to use and looked at the contract and talked to them. Prior to me doing anything, he did all of the stuff. So, this is important. I have a financial planning background. Sure. And so, I know you do. I, I know you also have a, a law background, but the, the law transfers over. All of this contractual obligation terms and agreements. Every app on your phone has one. How many people actually read them? None of them. Right. How important is it that they read them? It would be somewhat significant, I guess, to know what rights you're giving up. But yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. No. That's the key right there. It's like, do they even understand what they're agreeing to? Do they understand they're giving up rights? It applies to books, too, because there's royalties in some things. You know, you could be giving up 
uh, creative discretion in in the publishing of your book, and you haven't even recognized that. Turn around and make it into a movie deal, and the movie doesn't look anything like what you wrote, but you don't own it anymore, you know? Right. But these these are fundamental things because they don't go away. You can't go anywhere. You can't have a credit card. You can't have a bank account without having some sort of a contract. Absolutely. Passports. Brought up literacy in your book, too. Couldn't believe this, actually. This is sad. That I don't even know where I'm going to find it. But the stats on literacy and that there's so many people in this, in this time, in our day and age, that actually grow up not being able to read. Like, I was, I'm a little dumbstruck. <laughs> like, really? Well, you, really? Yeah, yeah. Apparently, you're not the only one a little dumbstruck, right? If the literacy rates are what they are. Sort of no pun, no pun. Ironic. Sadly. Yeah, sadly. Yeah, the numbers are, they're very bad. I think here in, in my state, I should say in the U.S., about five or 6% of African-American children are beyond proficiency in reading, writing, math, and science. I want to say 31% or somewhere like that is less than 50% on a whole. Only about a a third to a quarter of American children exceed proficiency in, in their reading and, and, and math skills. You wrote in your book about the disservice that the society has actually done to all kinds of people in the population. But, you know, my, my awareness has been broadened definitely about the African-American population because you've got in here, white-sounding names receive a request for an interview 10 times more often I, I like to believe that I'm a person that does not see color. Of course, I see color, but at the same time, I'm not going to look at you and go, oh, you're black and, and treat you differently. There's been times where this conversation of white privilege comes up. And I'm shaking my head at this because it's like I, I, I've been called someone who's white privileged more and more and more and more. I am learning what that is supposed to mean. And when it's said and who whom it's said by means something different too. There's so many connotations around this. But not understanding, I didn't realize that something as simple as the name of your child, you know, and whether or not it sounded white or not would impact, you know, whether or not they got a call back. You know, that was a light bulb moment. It's like, how? What? You say here, once again, one name, a couple of simple words might make one 333% more likely to receive a call for an interview. That, that's ridiculous. How is it that this is our society? Well, yeah, at the point that I want to make sure that, that I stress as a person who is considered black or African-American is that it's not just quote unquote white people. I don't, these are not my terms. They use the terms that the majority of people seem to understand, but right. people who we call white, it's not just that group of people making the decisions about how the name sounds to them. There are black folks who are also offended or don't like a name that doesn't sound normal, that they describe as normal as well. And would also hold that against a child too. So it's not not exclusive of, of just race making the decision. I know that that's the way many people pitch things in this country. So when we say like white privilege, which is to suggest 
that I don't have privilege. I have some privilege. I'm a black man who's a lawyer and who's run his own business, who's lived, who's you know traveled throughout the around the world, certainly throughout the country, whose child does enormous, wonderful things. I have privilege. So to say that a child who grows up in, for example, West Virginia to a family that once worked in a coal mine that's no longer, no one's gainfully employed, that person has more privilege than me is a stretch. So I, I don't subscribe to that. But I am familiar with the term, but I say to people all the time, some people that you say have white privilege are like people with a gift card at a store that has no money on it. What is, what is a card with no money on it? Right. It's nothing. What is, what is white skin with none of the stuff that goes along that you call privilege? It's just, they're just a human, like everybody else, who's struggling to find their way in this, this country or any other country. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that because I understand what media does and journalism does and the need to get attention for a story and how a spin can be put on different things. But again, I mean, it did bring to light for me, you know, that if I sound and look white, you know, there may be, may be some advantages in that uh, compared to someone else, I, anyone else, not just, you know, there just might be that comparison. I'm going to guess after the war is over that a child with a Russian name is going to have some challenges in America. Which is so sad because you know what? That citizen is probably totally against everything going on in their country. Right. You know, what are we doing up here? What's going on up here that we're allowing this to happen? Nothing. But that's the lazy approach that we take, right? I can't say what happens in Canada because I don't live in Canada. But in the U.S., we love to fragment people's humanity. We only want to see that thing which we can either criticize or we can embrace. But the rest of someone's totality, if you imagine... We all are made up of 360 degrees worth of things. We only choose that one degree that we're most comfortable with or we can criticize. And the rest of us, we completely ignore. So why do you think that is? That's a shallow way of being in the sense. I don't mean shallow as in the the shallow word of being a shallow person, but the shallow is in it's not depth. It does not. Humanity has a lot of depth. And that's not a really deep level. I mean, we're just skimming the surface here. Why do you think we're there? The majority of us are just skimming the surface. That is what we do for convenience. You may be old enough to remember when you made copies in school. In the old days, you go, go to the principal's office and they pour some ink in a copier. They turn it right in, <laughs> right, right. And then you get copies at first. It'd be too much ink and you can barely read anything on a page. And then finally you get something that would be great. And then towards the end, the copies got lighter and lighter and you could hardly see anything. Yeah. I feel like that's what we've done with our humanity. Uh, we, we, we start out, we have some good copies. And after a while, we move so far away from, from things that are about being civil and humane that we end up creating a version of ourselves that we can b- barely stand to see. That's where I feel like we are. I, I was saying to my, some of my, fr- my friends that I want to go to Ukraine. And I started to investigate how I could go to Ukraine. And one of the things that some other Black folks said to me was, well, you know, they don't like Black people. And I said, well, well, but you tell me they don't like Black people in America. And yet you're here. 
But the, the larger question is, how do people who wanted the whole world to stand with them after incidents like George Floyd, people all across the world, from America to Ukraine, stood with, with Black folks, now say that you won't stand with someone else. Isn't what Putin's doing essentially putting his knee on the neck of a whole nation? How was that different from Officer Chauvin putting his knee on the neck of George Floyd? If your humanity matter in that moment, don't their humanity matter? Because we live with this one degree, <laughs> and all we can see is whatever impacts us. I and think in this country, certainly it would help us to, to have something that allowed us to be able to look at the world as, as citizens. And we don't have any training in this country to train people to be citizens. Like we don't have anything for parents. We don't have anything for citizenship. In the school system, when I was going through school, we didn't have that either. But watching my child go through the school system here, they have that. It's an element of their curriculum is citizenship. I can't imagine it not being there because it's changed the individuals. When I was in school, if anybody even said it, I wouldn't have any comprehension of what it would be. I think there are there are individuals that care about this thing innately, don't kind of need to be taught it. We need to be the ones to help teach it. But I don't think as a population as a whole, because we're born as narcissists, <laughs> we were just kind of drawn to citizenship. We have to be taught. I'd hear. There's modeling. Yeah. We have to see somebody do it. Don't tell, show. Be what you want others to be so they can see what it looks like and then decide whether or not they want to in turn be somewhat like it as well. When I think again about like the the copier, I think about people like, and I hate to use it because we use them all the time, but people like Dr. King or Malcolm X, I have said to people, the Malcolm X who was before he died would have been in Ukraine and the Dr. King before he passed would have also, I believe, would have also been in Ukraine. They would have understood that the Issues facing Ukrainians with Russia were no different from the issues facing African Americans or Asian Americans or whomever in the United States or any issue that a Canadian might have. That the issues of humanity are are issues that we all seem to face, and that if we could show the connectivity between all those things, we could all find a way to work and live together in, in more harmony. We don't look at the world in that lens anymore. Maybe that's why, why we continue to get worse, to your earlier point, is that there's not a lot of teaching of that or that modeling in people's homes anymore. So I think now it falls under global or nationalism, because I, I, I understand that the, the high school curriculum is teaching here, is teaching mm -hmm. nationalism, which that would fall under. we got to take people my age <laughs> back to school. <laughs> am I? Am I? <laughs> In mind, yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> We're not that far apart in age. <laughs> I'm 56. You don't have to tell me your age. I'm 56. Okay. I'll be 57 in July. Yeah. So, so yeah. yeah, we do have to do that. It's not an easy task. It's a lot of work right? getting us to, to think differently when we've been living and thinking away for a very long time. And have given ourselves every reason to believe what we think is right. Well, there's comfort there. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. I am so enjoying this. I, I was so excited to receive the box of books because you sent me the links. I want you to 
have the physical copies. I know I'm a big fan of, I prefer physical copies. Thank you. Now, next time they need to be signed. Sorry, I, I, when, I, when I put them in the mail, I was like, I didn't sign them, but I always tell people they'll probably be worth more without my signature than, than me writing in them. But yes, I will make sure that the next thing I, that I write, I was to make sure you get the signed copy. Oh, I'm working on three books now. We're working on three things now. Wow. Well, okay. Let's talk about those when they're coming out. But where do we want to lead people so that they can find you, work with you, get you to speak for them? Where where do we want to send people? You can just send them to to the website, NathanielAturner.com. They can find some prior interviews, podcasts, TV stuff. They can find YouTube stuff. You can find a link to our not-for-profit, The League of Extraordinary Parents. Um, you can find the books there. So just about everything you can find at, at that site. So do some of the proceeds of the books go to that not-for-profit? Yeah. And recently I was doing a book signing. I sent the proceeds to the Red Cross of Ukraine. Thank you very much for that. I'm efforting to go to Ukraine, so I will keep you posted on that. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely want to follow your journey there. To my family, has mixed emotions about it, but there's that. Well, it's calling your heart. Yeah. What do you hope that you'll be able to do by going? Thus far, the most information that I received is from the Ukrainian Volunteer Army. And they've told me, you know, if you come, here's what you got to buy. Here's your combat material you have to have, et cetera. I have real mixed emotions about that. I'm not a pacifist, but I don't want to have to live with having taken someone else's life. Certainly, if I, my life is taken, I don't have to live with that. But I don't want to have to live with, with having taken someone else's life. So I'm not sure that that's what I'd want to do sort of feel like this. If I asked you, could I come over, help you, let's say, clean up or repair something in your home? And when I got there, you say, Nate, I need you to plunge and clean the toilets. What, <laughs> what I don't feel I have the right to do after volunteering is to tell you what I'm unwilling. So I feel like when I get there, if that is what I needed to do, then I guess I'd have to do that. But that's not at all what I'd really I just, I get, I don't know exactly how to help, but I want to go do something that means helping some family get across the border or maybe paying for some people to have some place to stay or doing something. I feel like now I should do something to, to help. I don't know exactly what that is or how best to do that other than pick up a gun. Huh. You feel like you could be more helpful by actually physically being in the country? Okay. Here's the honest answer to that. Okay. I have a real concern that the way people see me, mm-hmm. it's always through the lens of me asking for someone to see. I see. Right. And I'm saying to people, sometimes the best way to be seen is by being in service for something bigger than yourself. I've been turned on to television and seeing some prominent person, African-American, talking about this issue from the lens of a person who has lived in a country where they feel like they've been hindered or had their knee placed on. When I watched the children being separated at the border, I thought immediately, well, that's a little bit like the experience I heard slaves talk about when their children were separated from them at the slave auctions. 
No, it's not the same thing. The fact is that people who lived through that kind of experience seem to me that we should have more empathy for other people going through that. And I just haven't seen any faces that look like mine. And my father is gone. He passed in 2018. And I mentioned we had lots of challenges. But some of the good stuff I got from him was he would have said to me, Nate, if you feel so strongly about it, why are you waiting for somebody else to do it? You go do it. And so for that reason, I'm like, well, maybe that's what I'm supposed to go do. Maybe I'm supposed to go. And someone will say, aha, see, we did see somebody. Maybe Smiles is asking the same question. Well, we see somebody that looks this black that, that speaks up about this in that way. And maybe that's, maybe that's my call. I'm not quite, quite sure. But It hasn't quite shown up for you 100% yet. Yeah, no, yes, no, I don't, I mean, I know what I could go do for sure, but I'm not, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with, with that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being a guest today. Again, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Yes, mine too. I look forward to sharing this. I will definitely uh, put ways that people can get in touch with you, both uh, your website and social media on show notes and in links, there will be a, a blog post with a bunch of marketing co-marketing assets and there will be a blog post page and I'm really looking forward to releasing this. Hope you enjoyed this episode. To get notifications of new releases, subscribe. You can also like, follow, download, and share. If you've enjoyed this, your friends will too.